If you have been around, you've been hearing about these lives that uh, feel so special because we commemorate them and um, uh, you know, speak in reverent tones about them, but these are real people in normal times uh, who have been made extraordinary because God um, has come near to them and they have um, in very particular and specific ways formed their lives uh, into the life of Christ and their place and time. And so it's, these stories help us grow in our imagination. They also deepen our knowledge and understanding of how deep and wide and at times strange this family of God is, this great cloud of witnesses to which we uh, belong and are also called saints. So I'm going to invite Noah to read our scripture today from Psalm 139. Yet search me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go? From your spirit, where can I flee from your presence? I, if I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light behind become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the way ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Where I count them, there would, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. You speak of me with evil intent. They... Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and adore those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and I know my heart. Test me and I and know my anxious, anxious, anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way to in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Nice job. Nice job. So, as we, as we do with these Y'all Saints passages, there's a level of kind of theological nerdery, of history nerdery, and uh, hopefully of some devotional possibility for us. And so, if you'll um, excuse the former two to get to the latter. Uh, we'll, we'll do that. 
Ignatius was born Inigo Lopez into the world of the Basque region of Spain. And he was born into a world that he didn't create and would have no idea how he'd come to shape. You see, he arrived into a family that already had 12 other kids. And his mother passed away when he was really young, so he actually was raised by his oldest sister-in-law and the wife of the town blacksmith. And then a year after he was born, remember that date, 1491, there was this other infamous thing happening, this voyage launch from his home country. You might have sung at some point a song about 1492 and sailing the ocean blue or something happened. So Inigo arrived into a world of exploration and war. Inigo's oldest brother, uh, Juan Perez, was a soldier in the Italian war. His, so uh, you might imagine he grew up idolizing this basically father figure. Um, his paradigm, what, what he strived to become in this world was a soldier, uh, an explorer, a uh, conquistador. And young Ignatius was taken with the idea of this like brave, swaggy soldier figure. And he joined the army right away at 17. And he climbed the ladder in that military service until eventually his military career and almost his life were ended at the age of 30. He was injured in battle. He was shot in the leg with a cannonball. And it almost like blew his leg off. It injured him. And so bad that it gave him lasting pain. His one leg healed much shorter than the other, and he had a disabling limp for the rest of his life. This painful and terrible interruption for an ego became the moment of his conversion, the time when God interrupted and changed his life. I'm almost finished reading this really incredibly, and yes, theologically nerdy book um, by a contemporary theologian named Andy Root or Andrew Root. And he traces these themes of transformation that are around us. And he does that by looking at modern memoirs. Um, like memoirs are, are hot. Like you, you can't go through the New York Times bestsellers and not see all of these memoirs. And he posits that there are three main ways that transformation occurs. And memoir is like a transformation genre. If there's not transformation happening, is your life really worth writing a memoir about, right? And it's interesting because two of these ways that transformation happens kind of don't necessarily need God for that transformation, or at least the way that it's narrated. The third one um, happens in a world where God acts and matters, but the first two not necessarily. Stay with me here. I, I think this, this matters for uh, Ignatius's life, and I think it matters for our lives. The first kind of, of mystical journey, mystical pathway to transformation is heroic action. I, I think some of us probably gravitate towards those memoirs. They're either about like nature, vocation, exercise, maybe overcoming sickness, these are stories of marathoners and mountain climbers and ship captains 
or grinding your way to success or living longer than the doctors said was possible. In these stories, you start as a no one or a weakling or on your deathbed and you come to life. That's the theme, the shape of these stories. Heroic action. The second is inner genius. These memoirs are about inner genius. That they're normally about like the categories are kind of like romance or child rearing or discovered talent. It's when you find out something about yourself that you didn't previously know. These are personal tales of embracing desire and finding identity and being transformed by acceptance, maybe of others, but especially of yourself. In these stories, you start repressed or unnoticed or alone, and you come to life. These are also really interesting, riveting, beautiful stories. They're, they're deeply inspiring and, and touching. So you might imagine that someone like Inigo, for all the hardship of his life, he was also kind of a, a privileged Spaniard, living in a time of great possibility, that of all these mystical pathways, he, he, he probably was really going after these things of, of heroic action and inner genius. These were the primary ways he might experience meaning and and again, these are events and experiences that require so much of us, and hearing these stories inspire us so much towards something better. But Ignatius, when his life really changed, when, when he really experienced transformation, it happened on a third path, the path of confession and the path of surrender. This, these stories, um, like his happened when he was healing up from a leg injury that, that he didn't ask for. He didn't opt into this path. And so he's, he's healing up. I, I imagine the scene, I was trying to put myself um, into the scene and, you know, when you imagine a world that's so different from yours, inevitably you, like, come up with all these anachronisms and things that couldn't have happened. And so I imagine him um, laying on his back in this castle and he's asking for for something to read, something to do, something to occupy his mind. And he's asking for like knight's tales, like chivalry stories and military victory escapade stories. And his very pious sister-in-law mother figure is helping him out. And, um, and like is hearing his request. And I'm imagining like the analogy for this are like Louis L'Amour novels or like Maxim Magazine, or like scrolling Instagram, and his really devout um, sister-in-law says, no, we don't have any of that in this castle. And instead gives him tales of saints in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. And, and he falls in love with these stories. They, they supplant and replace all of his impulses towards heroic action and inner genius, and he he, he reads about and, and falls in love with Jesus and these Jesus people. He particularly appreciates the life and the legacy of St. Francis of Assisi. In Francis, he read of a character, maybe saw himself a little in this, who surrendered his standing and his wealth to go out into a world with nothing. In some ways, 
Ignatius's story is like a classic y'all saints story. It's kind of what we hope happens when you are exposed to the lives of these saints, that you see something of yourself in them, maybe not all of them, or maybe little parts in all of them, but a lot in some of them, and you're encouraged by the way that God impacted and lived through other people in their times and places and the ways that they've received God so that you can receive God in your life, in our time, in our place. For Ignatius, he was laying there suffering. Think about this. Zero anesthesia, right? Leg blown off by a cannonball. (laughs) And he was beginning, over a long period of time laid up, to imagine a whole new life. He was being forced to change his way of thinking. He had once thought in terms of mountaintops and glory, he couldn't even walk up a mountaintop if he wanted to now. Now he was thinking of valleys in the cross. Christ met him at his lowest and began to work in his life to call him to new and important work that he never would have seen as particularly interesting, exciting, or worth giving his life to. He surrendered to serving God and following Jesus. Then as a priest, he entered into these holy orders and he, he made these holy vows. And all of this started not on the battlefield, but in the hospital bed. At one point, it said that uh, Ignatius, years later, because of this religious work that he was doing, faced the prospect of being devoured by wild beasts for his faith. I hate when that happens. And he was quoted as saying, uh, kind of waving people off and saying, my birth is imminent. Forgive me, brethren. Do not prevent me from coming to life. So we see this full revolution in his life where Uh, initially the best possible way he could have died was on a battlefield, being brave and heroic so people would say his name forever. And now the best possible way he could live and die and actually live through dying was to be dismembered by wild beasts because of his faith, to become a martyr for Jesus. It's this coming to life in the embracing of confession and surrender and death that marks his spiritual conversion. He's no longer a soldier who, who deals death to others on the battlefield, but instead he welcomes and embraces it on his body. And this allows him also to embrace life in an open and receiving way, whatever it's going to give him. So coming to life for Ignatius, no longer means acts of heroism or inner genius, but living in God's presence, in God's world, and learning how to know God's will and walk in step with God's spirit. You might say in the words of Apostle Paul, he found out to live is Christ and to die is gain. So then years later, he would go on to found the Society of Jesus. So if you ever see an author or a priest with SJ after their name, they are part of the Society of Jesus, also known as the Jesuits. You may have heard of them, especially when March Madness rolls around. Things like Boston College and Creighton and Georgetown and Gonzaga, various Loyolas, Marquette, St. Louis, Xavier, to name a few. They're normally at the bottom of the bracket beating the really big state schools, right? 
and he found this order, this holy order, with six companions. I think that's kind of significant also. Contrary to heroic tales that are only have one name at the top of the org chart, I mean, directly contrary to Columbus's voyages and expeditions, you never know about the other people piloting the other ships. Contrary to that, Ignatius goes on to found an institution and an order with deep and lasting and ongoing impact with six other companions in this work. Like, that was built into the, the founding. And <clears throat> Ignatius was thrust into a life of deep community and discernment. He couldn't do this alone. I will say there were some holdovers to his military like personality, and sometimes you you see this in, in other people with military backgrounds. They'll go and do something very non-military, but you'll be like, "Oh, you're you were military, right?" Like I was at this baseball tournament yesterday, and this coach was definitely ex-military because all the kids were wearing like Desert Storm camo uniforms. It was, and their names were like the Ospreys or something. It didn't make any sense. But anyways, but uh, most priests t took two vows. Does anyone know what the, the standard two vows for priests are? Yeah, poverty and chastity. Good, Pastor Meg. A plus. <laughs> but Jesuits added a third. It was obedience. Obedience, especially to the Pope, uh, quote, as if a lifeless body. Like they were just like the robots being guided. Um, and so you can see this holdover, the discipline and military precision carrying over from his previous experience, like uh, almost like the like uh, special forces priest uh, that he was imagining. And after creating this religious order, Ignatius wrote a series of spiritual exercises. This is really important, and I'll tell you, they are really intense and meticulous. Think like medieval spiritual diet journaling or something like that, um, the, the ways the, these work out. But inside of all of this discipline and all of this obedience, it's actually a spirituality of freedom and collaboration. Again, I think this is part of, of Ignatius's transformation. These things that are normally designed for uniformity and filing down to a point instead wind up uh, opening out and creating new possibilities for collaboration and community life. Jesuits are deeply communal, and one of the ways that they are is through spiritual direction. It is a key relational fixture. I've experienced this relationship personally over the last couple years myself. Benefited regularly of meeting with someone who I can open up my thoughts and hopes and hurts to. And she just helps me notice and reflect and focus and release things in order to walk closer with Christ in the spirit. My spiritual director reminds me to pay attention to things like emotions and my body, to talk to Jesus like a friend, which is a challenge like for like any reasonably smart person, uh, you, you start to get too smart for your own friendliness, right? She helps me ask questions about my emotions and pay attention to their cues. She also helps me to trust 
that God is with me even when I'm not aware of it and kind of retune and recalibrate my senses for that. One of the best fruits of these spiritual exercises is this practice of daily examine. This is maybe like transformed Ignatius in a nutshell, this daily examine practice. It's a regular rhythm of noticing and responding to God out in the world. This is an immensely practical and practicable faith. One that expects God to already be at work. It's, it's a spirituality where God is constantly coming to us and working through us. And that we need to develop through our senses. The ability to perceive and to work with God to repent and come back to the God of grace who never leaves us. One of Ignatius' most famous prayers is, Lord, teach us to be generous. Teach me to serve you as you deserve, to give and to not count the cost, to fight and to not heed the wounds, to toil and to not seek for rest, to labor and to not ask for a reward, save that of knowing that I do your will. This is a spirituality where God works in our real lives, in our real places, at this time now. It's um, a place maybe summed up, uh, the spirituality summed up by a Jesuit poet, Gerard Manley Hopkins, that says, the world is charged with God's grandeur. So I want to conclude and call back to our Psalm 139 by offering a practice of examine that we can do just in our seats together. And Psalm 139 is a particularly special bit of scripture for me because when Rach and I um, first had Noah, we uh, committed to memorizing uh, that while we were holding her. So it was kind of cool that she got to read it today. Um, I remember first thinking, I'll never remember the whole thing. Also, screened out a couple of the verses about like hating the bloodthirsty and stuff. That didn't, that's not part of this exercise. Um, but when I didn't think I could memorize the whole thing, I probably was also drastically under, underestimating how much middle of the night time that I would have in the coming days, months, years, decades. Um, but this, in this psalm, the psalmist writes in a, in a poem, a, a song, some really reflective elements of the examine. So I want you all to, to get comfortable feet on the ground, um, uh, maybe take a breath, close your eyes. If you need a cue, that'll be up on the screen, but you can keep your eyes closed if you don't want any distractions. Normally the ways these examines work often happens midday so that you can look back on the beginning of the day or in the evening so you can look back on the whole day. You start by recalling that you are in the presence of God, no matter what. The psalmist might say, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. So we're calling to mind God's already there-ness. That's the ground and the gravity of our reflection. 
If we do this midday or at the end of the day, it might cast our whole experience differently. It might charge the world with grandeur and grace and possibility. In doing this, we might be called to repentance for when we went about our day or our morning as practical atheists, living as God as if God wasn't there the whole time. How is God already being there, the key to ministering to our neighbors or people or suffering or in distress? Sometimes we fear we don't know what to say when someone is sick or hungry or sorrowing. But what if every door we walked into, we turned the knob expecting or at least hoping that God was already on the other side of the door? Remember that you are in the presence of God. second part is that we look at our day with gratitude. The psalmist writes, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Giving thanks is a fundamental part of prayer. We thank God for who God is and for the tangible things we experience. Notice those things. Notice your breath. Notice the things that um, you're touching. Notice the smell of this place. Notice some of the remnants from this morning. Um, The smell of the soap when you washed your hands earlier or um, the smell of something that you had for breakfast or prepared for someone else. Give thanks for these gifts. By giving thanks, we take a huge step. We move from experiencing the world as a bunch of givens to experience the world in our lives as full of gifts. Name these gifts. Direct them as prayers of gratitude. It'll help you grow in wonder and appreciation. It'll help you feel God's presence and grace in your life. Look, even at this morning, in gratitude and give thanks. Now pay attention to your feelings. Pay attention to emotions. The psalmist wrote, 
Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. For as probing and distanced some of these practices can be, stepping back from the doing into the being, the examine also asks, how did that feel? Where were there anxious thoughts? And you put your finger on one, ask God to search and know it. And join God in that journey to begin to understand yourself. You can ask, what made me feel defensive? What made me react because I was afraid? Why did I feel such deep compassion for that person then? What is God saying to me through my body when I feel these things? How can I live more fully into the good news of Jesus by digging deeper into these investigations. Pay attention to our emotions. Notice those things. Lastly, review your day. Great thing at midday, that's just the morning. The psalmist says, how precious to me are your thoughts, God, how vast the sum of them were I to count them. They would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. This is kind of a paradox and an exercise of limits. Just today, just this morning, but also, our days matter. Annie Dillard once quipped, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. So consider the manageable amount of our lives that is today. Think of one feature of the day, positive or negative, and stay there for a sec. Examine it, respond to it in whatever way that makes most sense, in gratitude or intercession or repentance or praise.
Now look forward to the rest of the day. Look forward to tomorrow. Things you can foresee, but also with a hope and an attentive and discerning spirit for the surprises you'll encounter. How is Christ with you? What are God's gifts to you? How is the Spirit speaking to you? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your many gifts. We give you thanks for the gift of lives well lived that can help us live our life well in pursuit of you. We give you thanks for the gift of time and space and some measure of quiet to reset and tune our hearts to hear from you and to um, draw near to you. Thank you, Lord, for always being closer to us than we even know. Walk with us as we go out of here the rest of the day. Help us be mindful of your nearness, your love, your mercy, your grace. And, uh, Lord, help us join with you in this good work in this world. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.